Hello, my name is Tyler Chisholm and welcome to a special episode of Collisions YYC Current and Critical, a focus episode where I sit down with local leaders to discuss the topics of the day. Well, I'm, hey, let's just jump right into it. I've got Ken, Ken Wolner, President and Chief Executive Officer at uh, Velvet Energy on the line this morning. How are you doing, Ken? Good morning, Tyler. I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Excellent. And uh, how are things? Let's jump right into it. You are a bit in the oil and gas sector for, I think, 30, 30 plus years. Your 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 career has been spent in that in the industry? Yeah, that's right. I um, I came out here. Um, I, was, uh, I went to geological engineering school at U of T. Uh, my original plan involved, um, I grew up with a boyhood dream of becoming a gold prospector in Northern Ontario and finding a gold mine. And so I translated that dream into enrollment into uh, geoengineering at U of T, spent two years um, sort of looking at the hard rock side of the business and more importantly, two summers working in the Canadian bush, banging on outcrops and doing all the things that geologists do when they're looking for gold mines. And yep, you know what? Absolutely. Uh, somehow the reality of black flies, deer flies, beaver swamps, um, et cetera, and sort of remote camps um, didn't quite live up to the boyhood dream. And so um, I pivoted in third year to the soft rock side, got a summer job at Gulf Canada. And so that would have been 1981, let's say. And spent the next two summers as a student coming out here to Calgary and uh, fell in love with the city and the industry. And um, that was, uh, so I started full-time um, in uh, May of, eight, of 19, I graduated at the end of April and I started a week later. Um, and that was in 1983 and, um, uh, you know, never looked back, I guess. And, and moved out and moved out here and basically have lived in Calgary ever since. Yeah, that's right. So that's uh, 37 years, I guess. That's a... That's amazing. That's, that is uh, a yeah, yeah. When you start talking about it, sometimes time it probably feels it's like shocking yesterday. to hear myself even say those that, <laughs> those kind of numbers. And for your for yourself, just gradually worked your way through. Now, obviously, you're in a se- senior leadership position. I guess what just just give the audience a little bit of window until we get into the nuts and bolts of it. What was what was what was the journey for you? I've thought about that a lot, and actually, you know, I have three kids too, so you know, they've often asked me about those kind of things, and. Um, you know, I, I had a pretty interesting early career. I started, um, believe it or not, working in the Beaufort Sea drilling system. So Gulf um, at the time was um, a, on the forefront of um, offshore drilling in the Beaufort Sea. We had uh, developed proprietary technology to drill off floating drill ships, um, whereas uh, Dome Petroleum, who was the other big operator up there, had become expert at building um, caissons and sort of more gravity-based structures in shallow water, Gulf took the step of going into a little bit deeper water. And so we had a whole fleet of, we had a fleet of four icebreakers and two floating drill ships. um, And the whole task was to look for commercial hydrocarbons in the Beaufort Sea. And so um, for the first few years of my life, I spent flying back and forth between Calgary and Tuktoyaktuk um, and then working offshore, flying in helicopters off to these rigs. And my job uh, was to monitor the movement of sea ice, believe it or not, and help to direct the um, the operations of, of the icebreakers and things to, to continuously provide um, safe drilling windows 
um, you know, for the, for, for the rig, because, you know, up there, depending on the time of year, you know, ice is a pretty big hazard. So that was really fascinating um, uh, work for me. And so, um, and then of course that got wound down um, and I went from, uh, let's see, this would be now 1987, um, that that got wound down. And so my, uh, I got transferred, I went from a, an experience on a, you know, million dollar a day operation with, uh, steak and lobster dinners in, uh, in, you know, on the rig, on the rig, uh, in the rig cafeteria and to, I got transferred to Stetler, Alberta, um, working at the Nevis gas plant, which was a big sour gas plant, um, um, that's still there, I guess. Um, and that was about as dramatic uh, a difference as you could imagine in terms of going from, um, you know, high profile, big spending to um, every every nickel counts. And, um, you know, uh, it's not really very glamorous, but, you know, important sort of mm-hmm. to the base of the business. And so I spent a few years in Stetler um, in, in that context. And then I moved back to Calgary, uh, all with Gulf. Um, in, uh, uh, let's say, um, getting close to, uh, uh, late eighties or let's say 1990. And then I asked for a transfer after I was in the office a little bit, I asked for a transfer back to the field and I got, um, I was granted my request and I was a field foreman, um, in Saskatchewan, believe it or not. Um, so, um, looking after a lot of their production of Gulf's production on the Western side of Saskatchewan. Um, so that would be down in Kindersley all the way up to, um, Lloyd Minster. And, um, that was, that was, I would say that was a seminal experience in my life. Um, um, you know, it, uh, we lived in North Battleford, um, which, you know, was an interesting place and had access to Prince Albert and all the beautiful things that people that are from Saskatchewan understand. And most of us, including me at the time, didn't understand how gorgeous that province is um, as you get further north. Um, but the other opportunity it provided me as a relatively young engineer is I was supervising and leading a pretty formidable group of, um, you know, much older Sometimes crotchety, um, <laughs> seasoned, well seasoned, seasoned, uh, seasoned oil, <laughs> oil field guys, and um, you know they they uh, quote unquote trained and molded me to become you know actually a pretty useful leader. But it took a you know it took a lot of time. But I uh, um, but I look at that experience as something that um, was really formative in terms of my um, developing a passion for leading a team and um, realizing that you know for whatever reason, I had a certain aptitude for it. And so, um, so, you know, when I came back to, uh, to Calgary a, f- a couple years later, um, I would say I was much better equipped to deal with other opportunities. And one of those was provided in, uh, 1991, I had reason to meet a fellow named Gordon Stollery, um, who was the founder of a little oil company called Morrison Petroleums. And he and I had a similar background in the sense that he was a geological engineer, came to Calgary as I had done, um, and he knew virtually nothing about the business when he first started. So, you know, I became, um, um, you know, he and I became uh, pretty close, and he was a very important figure in my early career. And so, um, I helped uh, Morrison from 1991 to 1996 
uh, starting initially as a manager and then moving to a vice president level. And so that was my first experience um, in senior operate, uh, uh, sort of a senior leadership, let's say, of a public company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, that was a volatile period, really exciting, um, lots of growth, lots of chaos, lots of learning to manage by change. Um, all, and all, tra- young, all, tra- all training for what you're dealing with these yeah, days. Yeah, I mean, and, and so Gordon, Gordon was one of those unique entrepreneur, uh, you know, sort of uh, entrepreneurs who just had a different way of looking at the world, could see things that other people couldn't see, could see opportunity where others couldn't. And so I think some of that rubbed off on me. Um, and so um, with that kind of background combined with my big company um, experience at golf, I um, probably naively, but nonetheless, um, confidently decided that in 1997, it was time for me to set out on my own and try my own uh, hand at running a company. And so I, um, I took over a public shell of a, of an old mining company called Velvet um, Energy, or sorry, Velvet Exploration, and I, I see that I see that as, as the plot kind of ties together to the name of your company today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so um, the, um, the, the the business plan at Velvet Exploration was interesting. Well, first of all, when I started the company, no one knew who I was. Um, I didn't, you know, I wasn't well known really in, um, you know, having been sort of in the lower ranks of companies for years. And so I didn't attract a big capital markets following. I think our first financing we probably raised $4 million um, at 80 cents a share, I remember. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was my own money or insiders from, you know, like in my case, from severance package that I got from Morrison and, um, so, you know, some of my savings um, and and similarly with some of the other insiders. So we started with $4 million in 97 and we um, built that company over four and a half years to probably uh, about 13,000 BUEs a day in today's terms. Okay. Uh, we used to use 10 to one for, con- you know, converting, um, or sorry, six to one for converting gas to oil. So it was a little different, but. Um, okay. Um, but anyway, we, and then we sold that business to El Paso um, for f- uh, 430 million, uh, four, you know, four and a half years later. So, I mean, obviously pretty amazingly successful yeah, that's a great um, story for undertaking. sure. Yeah. What was, the, what was the industry just looking at? Obviously, we're going to get to kind of today's markets and some of the challenges of the energy sector. What was it like between 90? Like, again, that was before I had any optics or was connected to it at all. What was well, it it's like? Interest, it's interesting. I, I think, you know, when I first started Velvet, the industry was all about natural gas. And so, you know, in Canada, of course, was, um, you know, the dominant force there and um, Canadian gas was uh, a thing to be reckoned with. And so we got a lot of pressure from investors to develop a gas portfolio, which we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and oil was kind of the, um, you know, I mean, it was always there, of course, but it wasn't the high profile place to be, I would say. Um, and interestingly, um, you know, at the time, um, you know, I guess go, actually going back to Morrison days, um when, when I started at Morrison, uh, Canadian Natural Resources was just getting started. Um, and, you know, um, they were they were the early on the shallow gas players. And you remember Al Markin was, you know, pretty um, uh, pretty high profile in terms of being a supporter of, of gas development. And it's been amazing to me to watch through my career. I mean, here we are today, as I said, so, so many years later and CNRL mm-hmm. is still that, you know, um, an incredible success story and a huge machine. And so, 
um, anyway, getting back to Velvet, um, you know, the gas story was the place to be. And so that's where we were focused. And again, it was all about growth. Um, you know, how do you grow your production? How do you grow your cash flow? Investors wanted to have access to more and more growth. And so that was my early early times in capital markets was constantly trying to find new ways to grow the business. Um, and, you know, when I look back on it, maybe not so much focus on how to make profit and how to make a sustainable business, let's say. It, that wasn't the oh, focus. It's- Interesting. Okay. It's always, hey, you get you get the behavior that you reward, right? Or where you kind of where you hang the target, if you will. Oh, that's interesting. So exactly. Gro- growth being the primarily primary criteria, not necessarily some of those other fundamentals falling along behind, because that's not what you guys were getting rewar- rewarded for. I mean, I'm oversimplifying it a bit, but for mm-hmm. sure growth growth was tr- growth trumped everything. Um, at the time, um, Velvet was um, a um, a peer with Bonavista. Keith McPhail had just started the Bonavista uh, company and Ron Pelzer um, in that time period. And of course, they were legendary for uh, being able to provide predictable predictable growth, but also at a very good cost structure. And so, you know, I think they, they started to really turn the tides in terms of showing, you know, just in, in dramatic terms, how important the cost structure of the business and ultimately profitability was. So, you know, the, the business was even changing back then, but, you know, okay. it was, uh, it was the days of, um, I would say growth trumping everything else. And when you say growth, you're typically top line production, when top like production, as, as a- production and cash flow. Um, okay. but again, not so much on earnings, um, you know, um, and, and, um, a- again, not so much on a sustainable. I mean, there was always the view that the good companies would have, you know, maybe not unlimited, but but good access to equity. And so, as long as you kept the machine rolling and you didn't miss your numbers, and you sort of developed um, a reputation and trust level with your shareholders, you could mm-hmm. you could kind of count on equity being there um, when you needed it. Um, and so, you know, the good businesses would would just continue to sort of move along and, um, you know, meet their numbers or exceed them um, and try to, you know, uh, develop the lowest cost of capital that they could and, uh, and the equity would be there. And it was, it was almost kind of magic when I look back on it. And I think, I think a lot of us, (laughs) you know, I can speak for myself anyway, but I don't think I'm alone. I think a lot of us sort of thought, well, this is the model for how you do well in the Canadian energy patch. And so, you know, um, we didn't need to worry about markets, for example, like, yes. um, you know, my big focus at the first velvet was how do we drill the best wells possible and how do we get them on production? And, and, uh, and, but never did I spend time thinking about how do I move those molecules of gas downstream through the Nova system to some export pipe to some end market that, that was all, um, a bit of a black box that we just didn't have to worry about. There was always a market um, because, of course, at the time, we had this insatiable demand for energy south of the border of Canadian mm-hmm. energy. And so we all sort of grew up with the um, misguided, as it turns out, but the view that, you know, we didn't need to develop our market so much because um, we we happened to be um, ge- geographically adjacent to the world's biggest consumer of energy. And so, um, you know, that, I think that, that, that was an interesting and important, um, you know, change over my career, but early on that's, those were the halcyon days of, of the business. 
It's interesting to hear you like now to unpack it. And, you know, we're all, we're all experts when we kind of reverse engineer and to hear you unpack the, you know, the, the drive for that growth, you know, almost at all costs. I know that's not what you said, but that's kind of what I'm hearing that top line growth. And you think of, okay, what's all the cause of effects in terms of how the industry started to evolve based on that. And the second one, just believing your customer was always going to be there and not even having to really consider it. So as you, you know, getting into, you said 97 into like early 2000s and 2000 to, I moved to Calgary in 2000. It certainly was part and felt very honored to be part of that run to like 06, 07. It was a, that was a pretty fantastic journey to be in Calgary kind of like as moving here being like, wow, I've, I've discovered the, the wild west and it's amazing kind of feeling. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think the next big development in my career from an industry perspective that was um, formative, let's say, was the, the uh, creation of the royalty trust structure. And so, um, you know, um, you know, the Penn Wests and, um, and the Prime Wests and the, I guess even ARCs probably started that way back then. Um, but this whole model of, um, you know, a, a, a dividend paying vehicle um, because of the demographics of our society, there was increasingly demand for income. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, this was a ideal product uh, when well conceived and well executed to provide relatively sustainable um, dividend payments to a, an appetite, a market that seemed to have an insatiable appetite. And so I watched over time those, that industry become, um, you, you know, start, uh, get started and then evolve to the point where, um, you know, their cost of capital was so prohibitively high relative or sorry, low relative to the rest of us that the royalty trusts in their heyday, they were a force to be reckoned with um, and could do, um, you know, just massive equity financings and acquisitions. And, um, you know, because they enjoyed, you know, they trade as a yield product, um, they enjoyed a cost of capital that allowed them to make almost every acquisition look accretive. Um, And so, you know, they were really hard to compete with um, or compete against. And so, you know, as an entrepreneur, um, by the time we reached the period you're talking about, like, oh, let's call it 06, um, you know, I actually took a step back from the industry because I thought to myself, um, you know, as a, as an entrepreneur and a, you know, sort of a founder of, of, of businesses, I, I kind of like to, for whatever reason, I'm, uh, I've done it three times now. I, I, I seem to have a, an interest in starting at zero uh, with a clean slate and, and building something. And so for somebody that had that sort of game plan and let's, let's uh, give me the benefit of the doubt, say skill set, it was really hard to compete with the trust because they, they, could, they could do whatever, whatever they wanted, could pay more. And then the other thing that I saw over time is that the lines got blurred between you know, they were originally set up to buy sort of legacy, long life, low decline, low upside assets mm-hmm. and convert those into um, a yield. But, you know, as things happen, and as you were saying earlier, you kind of get rewarded for what you, um, for what the market wants. And so the market wanted these things to get bigger, faster. And so, you know, in, invariably the lines got blurred in terms of the risk that they were willing to take on the amount of leverage that they were willing to take on. And, you know, ultimately they got to the point where a lot of them were pretty badly over levered and had blurred the lines between, 
you know, even some of the, some of the trusts were drilling exploration wells, you know, so, which was never the original, um, but anything know, to, anything the, to meet that, to meet that growth objective. Yeah, that exactly. Objective. And so, and then they were legislated out of existence, I guess. Um, but you know, be, before then I had decided to step back a little bit and, uh, I took four years off and moved to the West coast and got out of the industry. Um, oh, so interesting. That, so that I was, know that. So, yeah, yeah. so would you say that, that, you know, listening to you talk about that royalty trust structure, as we talk about the history of the oil and gas, so that, that played a pretty significant role in terms of how things got a little bit maybe out of sync. I don't, I don't want to say out of balance. I want to choose what words I use. But if I think of that period of time and that role that they played, it sounded like it kind of skewed things a little bit and drove well, costs up and kind of made it, it, it broke how it should function from a fundamentals perspective. Listen to you talk about, you know, even the couple cycles before that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I certainly believe and I believe today that there's a role for the royalty trust idea in our business because um, there needs to be a home for these legacy, long life, low decline assets um, and with with not a lot of upside. And the world does need income and, and you know, with, with interest rates, 10-year US rates, you know, under 1%, you know, there's, a, there's certainly an appetite for them. And I think if they're well conceived and well executed, there's a there's a real opportunity here. Um, unfortunately, that first kick at it, let's say, probably wasn't um, as well executed on a number of fronts. Right. Um, but the bigger issue was that the finance minister at the time, I think, um, started to extrapolate and see the success of the Canadian royalty trust structure in the ENP, and imagine that. Suddenly, you know, we had REITs developing, and I think their fear was that um, because there's, you know, there's a lot of tax advantages um, mm -hmm. um, and it, to, to to that structure, and so I think they started the government started to get concerned that even the even the commercial the chartered banks would consider some sort of a structure like that, and their tax revenue was going to be permanently handicapped, and so they they put an end to it. But I do think I do think it was it was well intentioned. And I do think it was an. If you think about the the early wild the wild west days, where growth at all costs, mm -hmm. to use your words, and I think that's not that far off. Then you know, in the trust structure, it was sort of income at all costs, um, and you know, I think those are both sort of different ends of a spectrum. But you know, I think ultimately leading to where we are today, where. Um, you know, uh, that, that income aspect has not gone away. We still, you know, companies that can deliver, can deliver that, what they call free cash flow. In other mm -hmm. words, um, income that, you know, exceeds your, your, your capital spending and allows you to, to, you know, pay, um, pay dollars back to your investors on a regular basis. That's still highly sought after and highly valued. And why I think there still is a place for the trust structure in our, in our sector. Interesting. Do you see something like, is there any talk of that coming back? Is that, well, there's talk by us. I mean, there's certainly, you know, <laughs> right. places, but, um, I don't know. Um, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of advantages to it in the sense that, as I said, there is a huge need for it. If you think about the demographics of Canadian society that, you know, mm -hmm. so much of the wealth is, is in the, the baby boomers and the re, in the retiring age and they need income. Um, and I think, you know, certainly there's lots of legacy assets, um, out there. And also, you know, the, um, you know, if, if it was set up properly, um, I think there's, there's an opportunity for those kind of businesses to attract a cost of capital would, that would allow us to deal with 
a lot of the orphan well situation and some of the abandonment liabilities that often come with those legacy properties. So, um, you know, I, so again, I think, I think, I think it's early days. I think there's a few, you know, John Brusa, who's on my board at BDP, um, you know, who helped create the trust structure in the first place. I think he's, you know, one of those leading the charge, um, including my own CFO, Chris Thiel. He's another one that's wrote an open letter to the Globe and Mail recently and got a lot of positive feedback. So I think, you know, for some of us, we, we are still pushing it, but, um, you know, we'll see where it gets to. Interesting. Well, it's always, I think, valuable to be able to look at something that we tried it. Okay. We got a little bit off kilter. Doesn't mean fundamentally it was a bad idea. It just maybe got you know, didn't have the right the right checks and measures in the right places, but so often an idea gets thrown aside and then never to be looked at again because there was a bad experience. But, no, exactly. Hey, I reserve I reserve the right to learn and do it better next time. Right? Yeah, yeah, and then just sort of continue on the story. I think then the the next final phase, um, or or sort of you know major shift in the industry which affected me and and my thoughts was the advent of the resource plays, um, and so. You know, I'd grown up as most of us have in the industry, unless you're in oil sands, all the rest of us were focused on conventional, mm-hmm. relatively short life, high deliverability assets, mostly in, you know, eastern central Alberta, you know, uh, sort of in the eastern half of the province, let's say, where there was lots of great reservoirs and relatively easy to see with seismic and close to infrastructure and, um, and with the advent of the early days in, you know, mostly started in the U.S., I guess, in the Eagleford and the, um, the, the, the Barnett Shale and some of those things. But, um, you know, as that started to get traction in Canada, we all realized that, wow, I mean, this basin, not only does it have lots of the opportunities in the conventional high deliverability short life uh, projects, we've got an unbelievable suite of, um, of these resource plays. And so that, you know, I, again, getting back to Bonavista, actually, I, I, I remember one of the, the big transactions that happened was Bonavista did a big uh, transaction with Encana um, in the Hoadley Glock um, trend. And they were taking um, more regional sort of, um, less permeable, let's call it quote unquote, poorer reservoir and applying the new horizontal technology with multi-stage completions, which was in the early stages, but had been, you know, um, developed to, you know, for some of these early life resource plays and were having dramatic impacts on the economics of these projects that most of us had walked away from thought they were uneconomic. And so that really opened up, sort of reopened the basin again, in that sort of, let's call it 09, 010 timeframe. And that's when I came back from retirement and I started this company in 2011. Um, and we've been pretty much focused on resource plays ever since as, you know, as is most of the industry, as you know. Oh, interesting. So for yourself overall, it just, you felt that the industry was providing a level of attractiveness again, that was, that was worth kind of, you know, coming off the bench to get back in the game. Yeah. Like when I saw the, when I saw some of the, investor presentations for some of these projects and, and how they, um, you know, again, this, this, we were all, you know, in my career, we, we were always able to drill horizontal wells. What we were never able to do is figure out how to, how to complete the horizontal well at, through multiple points of the lateral 
because we just didn't have that completion technology. And once that started to evolve, then suddenly you could make up for the poor, poorer nature of the reservoir by, um, you know, accessing the reservoir from, uh, you know, way more points than a vertical well could, and mm-hmm. there, thereby increasing the contact area and fundamentally changing the whole game. And so it's, um, and then it's, so again, then it's technolo- became, technology, technology was the differential. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was, a it, it broke open a new industry. And so it suddenly became, geez, let's not look for the, you know, what I'd always done in my career. How do you, how do you look at seismic and look for the, the bright spots that stand out with the highest porosity and, you know, because that's the best reservoir. Suddenly it became, how do we find the plays with the most resource in place um, and, you know, not worry so much about the reservoir quality because the technology will do that for you. And, you know, that kind of, that was a sea change. And that was 2011, you said kind of 2010. Yeah, 2011. And so I think, I think the evolution that I've seen is, um, you know, in, in plays like the Montney, let's say, like early on in my career, other than the most conventional facies of the Montney, um, which would be, you know, far and away the smallest percentage of the, of the Montney um, opportunities that are there. But outside of those, the rest of it was uneconomic. And so um, when, when the new technology hit, um, it suddenly opened up this vast resource that really stretches from way up in northern northeastern BC all the way down into central Alberta. It's a world-class um, accumulation of hydrocarbon, which I think we all kind of knew was there, but we, you know, I think we, th- we saw it more as inaccessible and suddenly that opened that up. And, and then, um, y- you know, that's, that's when things really started to take off and you saw the creation of a number of these highly successful resource oriented businesses. And that essentially ran from around early to like 2011 to probably 2015. Is that like when, when did things kind of have that structural, like when did the next big left hook come, come, coming in uh, at the industry and you're from your, well, I think for, uh, um, yeah. So I, I think the other, I guess there was two things, um, you know, in the background, we should probably mention that I, I said earlier that we all grew up with this sort of um, security blanket of an insatiable um, need for energy f- by our biggest trading partner. Um, well, as the resource plays started to open up in the U.S., what it you know, unfortunately for Canada, what it turned out that they were also blessed with a number of these resource, you know, high re- high reserve low productivity opportunities in the, in the Eagleford, in the Bakken, and then, you know, most recently the Permian. Um, and so sort of quietly, I would say, or at least, you know, more quietly than it should have been, our biggest customer became our biggest competitor. And yes. we just weren't prepared for that as a country or as a, a province or as an industry. And so, you know, you started to, it was first manifested as um, a collapse in ACO uh, gas prices. So, because, you know, a number of these um, resource plays were easy, they were most easily accessed early on in natural gas because natural gas wants to flow out of rock, um, as you can imagine, much easier than or quick more quickly than oil does. 
And so early on, the, the resource play development was focused on natural gas. And that was, um, you know, a, a lot of that was happening in the U.S. And that new supply that came on, um, you know, really affected demand. And, and, and also, we also had the issue, we just didn't have enough export pipe. Even if there was demand, we, we filled up our, our pipelines in Canada. And so you saw ACO gas prices really collapse in, uh, in and around 2012, 13. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and suddenly, that. whereas early in my career, gas was the place to be, it, it pivoted. Um, and oil, if you remember, you know, oil in that period, you know, was over $100 US a barrel. I think it might have hit um, $140 uh, right before the global financial crisis in 08, 09. So, um, you know, by then, people had started to uh, understand the impact of resource plays. And we were back into a forget gas, it's all about oil. Um world and then um, and then the global financial crisis hit so that was a seminal moment for everybody of course and um, mm-hmm. and in, in a lot of ways natural gas never recovered um, from that uh, you know from the combination of events let's say and um, it's starting to now ironically um, you know Canada's now maybe the premium hub in North America from a natural gas perspective but that's you know that's a lot of years later um, and so you know, I think that was those kind of things were 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 pretty important, and then it was all about the combination of focusing on the new high you know high priced oil and using the new technology uh, in developing oily or liquid rich resource plays, and that's that I would say that's what's been characterized by largely for the last five years in my company and generally in Canada. So when you got when you got back into the market, it was specifically I guess how things have how have things changed from you guys when you first came back and to, with Velvet. <clears throat> so sorry, and just to be clear for the history back back twenty eleven, that was it's been Velvet Energy since then. Up yes, to that's right. Yeah, so we're we okay. just celebrated our ninth birthday. Um, uh, it was meant to be a four year deal, so I'm not sure um, what you make of all that. But I guess you know <laughs> along the way the the markets changed best, a number best of laid times. plans, Ken. Best laid plans, exactly. <laughs> but you know, getting back to the marketing side, though, I mean, you know, now circa 2020, a huge part of my job and a significant part of our corporate effort is around developing um, markets for our products, um, and mm-hmm. so. What you know on the natural gas side that that you know that's finding ways to get our gas from the wellhead to the to the best markets in North America, whether that's Eastern Canada or Chicago or um, Henry Hub down in you know um, in, in Texas, but um, you know and then on the oil side, um, perhaps even more so, um, developing markets to. Um, you know, to deal with the um, lack of egress that we have on the oil side, because what happened in gas also happened in oil. Um, and so we, you know, often are dealing with, you know, more ability to deliver than we have capacity to take that. So we have to get creative about how we do that. So the marketing has become a huge part of any successful company in, in the E&P space. Versus just taking for granted that you, you that you always had an abundant customer that had the exactly. ability to take it at whatever pace you yeah. could develop it. Basically. And so, for you know, people that aren't familiar with the industry, you know, you might think, well, that's kind of business one hundred and one. I mean, you you know, you <laughs> you develop an idea, you build a factory, you build widgets, and then you got to market those widgets. And and in some ways, I think 
um, we're all a bit embarrassed that we didn't sort of see this coming. Um, but you know, nonetheless, um, it's here now and we're all dealing with it. And I think, um, yeah. um, you know, doing the best we can. Well, taking into all that in consideration, I appreciate, thank you for the timeline, by the way, it was interesting to kind of go through all the different iterations and, you know, everything's a cause and effect that leads to another set of, set of, you know, circumstances. So you think about it now, access to market, obviously a challenge and, you know, said so kind of your main, your main driver versus you, you started off predicting ice flows and which <laughs> it's an interesting progression in terms of what's on your horizon, what's on your agenda now. Also access to capital provincial versus federal government and kind of where things lay from a national or even local perspective. What are your thoughts on that? Like more curious in terms of, you know, as a CEO, you've got that crystal ball on the corner of your desk. That's maybe cloudy some days, maybe not. What's what, where, where are things like, what's that next iteration? We've gone through all these different cycles. What do you see coming down? I don't want to say coming down the pipe. That's a bad now. That's a bad comparison, but what, what do you, what do you see as how we're going to get through? What, what's, what's the next phase? Well, I think, I think the other thing that we haven't talked about, which was a seminal, change um, was the whole climate change narrative and, yeah, you know, environment. environmental safety and governance discussions, which are now top of mind with investors and, and, and you know, companies alike. And so, um, you know, I think the, for, for those of us that are going to continue to responsibly um, have access to capital and run companies into the future, um, it's it's really learning to balance the the um, the sustainability, um, the, call it the social the social license to operate. Um, you know, in the context of the climate change discussion and concerns and environmental issues, and you know, developing a responsible footprint where we can still be part of the economic growth of this country because we're a huge our industry is a huge driver of. Uh, balance of trade. We, you know, we still export a lot of our, um, uh, you know, our, our country's um, revenue comes from energy. I think it's in the neighborhood of 15%. Um, so we're a vital industry for the economic health of Canada. And there's, you know, I think it's all about now finding that balance between um, how do we, how do we deliver the, the opportunities and the um, <clears throat> economic um benefits but you know keeping in the in context that there is this overlay of uh, climate change and environmental responsibility where do you think that because i've got lots of guests on the show obviously have a significant number of friends and family members that work in, in the sector and i also have friends and family members that live in other parts of canada and it's a very different narrative when you go to quebec per se and have a conversation around the dinner table around the you know the the, the environmental track record of the oil and gas sector versus in alberta i have a lot of friends that are very proud of the good work that they're doing and the quality and the level of environmental stewardship that their companies that partake in have we just got out of sync on the narrative or was it that we're kind of catching up with the fact that we weren't doing a great job? Like, I just hear so many different versions of that story getting floated around, really, to who, do, who depending who you talk to. Well, I think principally we um, we lost control of the narrative. Um, it's a little bit similar to the, you know, our biggest customer became our biggest competitor. I mean, these things happen slowly and sometimes imperceptibly until suddenly they're a thing. And when I think about, you know, my experience in the industry, I mean, first, one thing I want to say is having had access, you know, um, and opportunities to, you know, s travel around certainly North America and look at other 
you know, business hubs, whether it be Denver or Houston, or obviously spend a lot of time in New York and Toronto. I mean, the one thing I think that is not appreciated is just how many and the, and the quality um, of the business people and entrepreneurial community in Calgary. Um, you know, this, this city, you know, has had and still does have an unbelievable talent pool of creative, thoughtful, um, you know, humble, um, brilliant business people. And so that gives me confidence that we will solve a lot of these problems over time. Um, but, you know, getting back to the narrative, I think, you know, our industry grew up on, um, you know, competing. It was all about competition. Um, you know, I, I know like in my case, you know, depending on where you were at what stage in your company's development, you always had, um, you know, near-term competitors that you were sort of fighting tooth and nail to compete with for land sales or um, acquisition opportunities or even hiring talent. And so the whole idea of cooperating and putting a, a more industry-wide focus on things probably didn't, you know, wasn't our best um, attribute. We were much more used to competing for capital and competing for opportunities. And I think that didn't serve us well early on. And by the time we figured out that the narrative was being driven by a lot of these, um, I would say, you know, misinformed, if not, um, you know, even um, uh, deliberately focused on misleading the public in terms of just how dangerous our industry is and um, you know, we'd already lost a lot of that traction. And so we're trying to, you know, to your point, we're trying to get it back. And I think that's happening, but it's a slow process. And of course, we also live in a world where, you know, when I grew up, people read the Wall Street Journal or, you know, they got their their media and their news from the, largely from print, maybe from television. Now it's all about Twitter and, you know, Facebook and the social media where, you know, it's a, it's a very, very limited amount of information that gets transferred at light speed. And, you know, I think we, we sort of lost as a society, our ability to um, take time to really understand the complexity of issues and it becomes headlines and emotional responses. And I think the, um, the people that are lined up against our industry are expert at that and they've done an amazing job. And so we're kind of digging ourselves out of a reputational hole here, if you will. Um, so I think it's a combination of those things. Well, it's a challenge when, you know, the, the, the leading the narrative versus then responding to it almost as a defensive position, it, it puts you immediately back on your heels. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we've got some great people helping us like, uh, you know, um, Canada Action Group is, you know, we're, we we support that group and I think they do a fantastic mm -hmm. job and there's obviously others. Um, so, and, and, and obviously there's CAP and EPAC and sort of industry associations that I think are, are you know, in tune with what's happening. So, you know, we are, and, and all the, you know, all the CEOs understand that we, you know, there's, there's, we, we do have to work together on these things. So, and certainly the the premier and um, you know this administration in Alberta seems to understand that too. Yeah, curious to that. I, it's hard. To, it's hard to have this conversation without bringing in the, politi the political veil. You know, um, the fe federal position versus versus local. What are your thoughts on you know that kind of seems <laughs> very antagonistic? East versus west, right versus left, all that kind of stuff. It's not. It's not. It doesn't feel like it's helping us from a provincial standpoint right now, or I don't think federally either. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ironic because I came out to Calgary in 1983 when Pierre Elliott Trudeau was our prime minister and, <laughs> yes. you know, he just implemented the National Energy Program. And so as a young engineer, I saw um, the devastation that that caused in this city and industry and people's lives. And now you fast forward, you know, 37 years and we have, a you know, his son now um, in his second administration. And I think, um, you know, in a lot of ways, um, we're kind of back um we're kind of back to to where we were i think you know um you know i'm not a political guy and so i don't pretend to be an expert on this stuff but i mm-hmm. i think politics has come become a bit like we were discussing earlier um you know dr- sort of um headline driven and um catchphrases and and unfortunately politicians you know they need people to vote for them and people um, you know, people believe that um, what they read on on these Twitter feeds, and and so you know the, the the politicians are really just doing what is in their best interest to do, and you can't blame them for that. So I think we have to we have to really ch- kind of change the the narrative from within and try to drive change by being great examples and great stewards, and I think we're doing that. The industry, certainly being in Calgary, you can't help but but be exposed to it. It's still interesting when you go out east or central Canada, Toronto, Montreal, those areas. It's a very different narrative that's getting told and certainly a deeper set of beliefs that uh, the, the conversations around the dinner table can get really fiery really quick when you bring up the topic of the oil and gas sector. Well, I think the other thing too is that, you know, the, the inconvenient part for people in that of that ilk is that, you know, um, it's fine to say what you want about um, – greenhouse gas emissions and um and certainly we don't want to downplay the you know that their role at all mm-hmm. um and 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 so you know a certain amount lack there's a certain group that doesn't believe in development um of of these kind of resources the the inconvenient part is we just as a society as a world we haven't developed a good plan b and so you know what yeah, the turn tur- tur- turning it off doesn't make sense but that's often where the storyline goes right just just stop everything tomorrow it just it it doesn't hold up when it hits reality at all yeah and i think i think what doesn't get played enough i mean chris Sl- Sl- slobicki at modern resources put together a great um, presentation that I know he's taken around the country that I, yeah, I've, I've watched that. I've seen that. Yeah. And I think that was, that was fantastic. And I think the point he makes is, you know, people don't always keep in mind that, you know, cheap and a cheap and abundant and low cost energy has been a huge benefit for billions of people around the, around the world, helping to move them from poverty levels, um, or, or sub poverty levels to having a life where they can actually provide for themselves and their family. So, you know, cheap energy is is critical, um, or let, let's maybe not cheap, but l- let's call it you know uh, affordable energy is um, is critical to having a functioning global economy, um, and so we definitely um, can't lose sight of that. Number one, number two, even the most um, sort of um, optimistic views that I've seen from pretty. Um, you know, substantial and well-educated firms, um, you know, would say that even in the most green future that you can imagine, hydrocarbon is still going to be a very important part of the global energy mix for decades to come. And so I think, you know, w- we have to keep that in mind. And 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 to the extent that Canada has a policy that, um you know, does not take that into account and ends up, um, 
in some way handicapping our industry. We do it at our peril because those hydrocarbon resources are, there is demand for it. They are going to be required. The population is growing around the world. Um, there's going to be another few billion people, you know, by 2050 or 2060. So that will get satisfied. And whether if it's not Canada, it will be somebody with even a, um, a poor environmental or social track record. So I think those are all things that we find quite frustrating in Calgary is that, um, for example, Quebec, you know, talks about no pipelines through their province and yet they ship Saudi crude down the Gulf of St. Lawrence every day to their refineries. Um, that just seems pretty ironic and pretty disappointing. It does make it does it does make you scratch your head pretty quickly on where like the rhetoric of like know this, but then you like I'm like well yeah, but what about this? It's not even it's not even that obscure. It's right there where that misalignment has happened. That's a, I don't think we'll conquer that question on this podcast. But I liked what you said before about just hey business fundamentals. If the demand is there and you can't, if you can't get what your customers are looking for, they will go to someone else and buy it down the street. And you know, Canada is putting itself in a position to to not see it to be to basically to be closed for business. Yeah, I think that's right, and, and that's, I think the the risk. I mean, we've seen it, but you know, trying to raise uh, capital in Canada for energy um, is a you know pretty high bar, um, both from a an egress you know, pipeline um, infrastructure perspective, a regulatory perspective, a fiscal perspective. I think they generally investors just look at it and say, yeah, you know, wonderful resources there, great people, great teams, but, you know, the, the federal government doesn't have their back and uh, um, there's a lot of headwinds. And I think, I think we need to change that because we're, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing the impacts of that in terms of investment fleeing the sector, um, you know, literally on mass. And to your point, it's not just you know Canada being close for business from a you know large capital projects on a national basis. It's not just the oil and gas projects that are getting kind of pushed aside. We're we're really sending a message to the rest of the world. And I've talked to a few senior leaders that have been on some roadshows and out globally, and they're like, yeah, like the message out there is we just don't have a friendly environment for large scale investment for big projects. Period. Yeah, I mean. You know, to end on a happier note, though, the the one thing that <laughs> I appreciate that the, the sort of the the sort of confluence of all these um, developments that I see as we sit here today, sort of post or not not post in the middle of the COVID crisis um, and this climate change discussion and sort of the the hatred of Canadian energy, I actually do think um, that you know we've 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 had such an acute underinvestment both in Canada but particularly around the world in energy over the last number of years and that's that lack of investment has been sort of masked a little bit by the tremendous growth of the you know basins like the Permian basin in in the United States but you know that has that has changed and is um, maybe changed permanently with um, the way that investors are sort of thinking about the sustainability of of companies and and delivering profits and returns and so um, you know when you when you overlay this anti-energy ESG driven um, concern with um, you know with all this uh, lack of investment and yet the population keeps growing and as I said um, you know green sources of energy renewable sources of energy are important but they can't they can't possibly displace 
hydrocarbon for the for the you know for foreseeable future. I think that creates a pretty interesting mix for those of us that can survive. Where you know whether it's um, you know maybe not easy to forecast, but I actually think we could be headed into a period of um, relatively strong uh, oil and gas prices, and um, you know um, be sort of maybe not the halcyon days of the of the 80s and 90s, but in, into a much better world for, for those of us that can survive. That's an interesting perspective. The, the new normal might not be what it was, but it might be better than it is, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, I think there's a, there's a pretty credible case for that. And lots of smart people are already forecasting, you know, pretty, pretty high oil prices by the second half of next year. And certainly into 2022, just because of the lack of investment and the decline um, of some of these convent of these basins in um, well around the world really um, mm-hmm. and then superimposed with pretty resilient demand um, you know demand I think right now this year by the end of this year compared to last year is only down six percent and if you think about what's happened in the global economy that's pretty remarkable and it shows you how resilient um, and and the, and how important the need for energy is uh, for the for the globe so it almost shows that it, there was still growth if it was only 6% considering the impact that COVID has had on just on, Absolutely. on global yeah. I mean, demand. Yeah. Yeah, we've it shows s- that it's still been moving up. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's happening, again, that doesn't get talked about a lot, but if you think about, you know, um, pre-COVID, we were in the world of, call it 100 million barrels a day of demand for oil and, and you know, maybe a, a rough balance between supply and demand that, you know, moved around a bit um, depending on, but- you know, if you think about the makeup of that hundred million a day of supply, um, it's dramatically different today than it would have been ten or fifteen years ago. Because a lot of these high decline, resource oriented plays, like we have, um, you know, in in the Montney or the Duvernay or in the Permian, um, you know, they're they're a much bigger piece of the of the pie, and so the underlying decline uh, nature of our supply chain is I think somewhat sometimes underestimated as well. And so you get the confluence of this higher decline, Mm, acute lack of investment for years and years with even a modest growth scenario when, when the economy recovers. And that's a pretty interesting cocktail, I think. Interesting for for you. Like I heard what you said loud and clear for the players that are able to one survive it, but also look look positive in the eyes of investors from an environmental perspective. Cash flow, like being able to meet more, maybe a little bit more of a com a checklist that has a few more boxes on it than it might have had at one time. Correct. Yeah, and I think I think growth for growth's sake has gone out the window. It's now sustainability at all levels, financially and socially, environmentally. Um, and, you know, focused on return, returning capital to shareholders as opposed to just continually spending it and trying to, to turn that into growth. Um, and I think those are all fundamental um, here, things that are here to stay. And that sort of tends to favor the larger, lower cost um, businesses. So I think there's going to be, you know, a big focus here on consolidation um, and, you know, a lot of the companies that I grew up sort of creating and selling, you know, those, it's going to be harder for them because the world, the world wants liquidity, the world wants scale, the world wants predictability and low cost. It doesn't want, um, you know, big growth and uh, uh, let's say high beta um, outcomes. And so I think for, you know, there'll always be a market for startups and 
entrepreneurs, but I think in general, that's not where the energy patch is going. That's interesting. So I'm super, well, there's been significant consolidation. So Velvet, in terms of what, what size are you guys in terms of production? We're about 30,000 BOEs a day and roughly balanced between oil and natural gas liquids and natural gas. So we have a, I think we have a good portfolio that way in that we can, mm-hmm. you know, um, and in fact, we're, we're, we're capitalizing on that um, here, here right away. We're starting to drill sort of gas, more natural gas oriented wells in um, in central Alberta, because on a relative basis, with the collapse in oil prices, the those are our best opportunities. And whereas last year, it was all about developing our Montney oil assets. So, you know, I think having that 50-50 balance makes sense to me. Interesting. So when you look around the industry and you think about, you know, even what's happened since 2015, like, has it you know, players that are your your size, are you seeing more like, I guess, who who's making it through? Like, are, do you think we're going to have a strong enough base when we get to the, you know, you talked about even, you know, Q3, Q4 of next year, which seems a long way away sometimes for some people, but literally it, it's it's tomorrow. Do you think that we're going to be as a province and are we going to have the right people at the table? Like, are the good companies going to make it through well, to when they can recognize some of yeah, that? Yeah, I think the best companies always do. And I think ultimately investors understand that their needs, to, and I think, um, boardrooms un- are understand too that this consolidation needs to happen, um, and there are going to be the survivors. And you know, I'm I don't know how to handicap it, but my guess is, you know, um, from a sort of intermediate um, or or slightly larger, not below the the, the majors, you know, there mm-hmm. might be 15 of those, not not 75 or 100 like we have today. So. So I think you know that's going to have a material impact on, on on Calgary and the industry. But those jobs are still going to be there um, t- to a large extent, and I think th- 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 those companies will be better positioned, have a better cost of capital, and have an opportunity to you know to continue to develop the amazing resources that we have in Alberta. Well, I think everyone would would be happy to sign on to a little bit less volatility and a little bit more predictability, whether that's as an employee, as an investor, like right, right across the board. The, the roller coaster does get, I think, wears people down over time. Yeah, no, for sure. I think we all have a bit of PTSD from the last, <laughs> you know, number of years here and now, you know, sort of culminating in the in this uh, COVID crisis. So, you know, I, I agree with you. I think I think we need to get back to that to to that place, but I think we will, and um, hopefully put this health crisis behind us and get back to the business of, you know, providing um, energy for the world that's going to need it. Yes, which is which is clear. There's there's no endless amount of information or white papers you can read about the demand of energy. You know, the energy abundance conversation is one that I really like, and it's not, you know, like you said, not about necessarily cheap energy. It's about abundant energy in all of its forms, and an oil and gas sector is gonna, you know, is gonna play a role in that. So, hey, last question, just your thoughts on obviously Calgary economic transformation. People are like, there's challenges in this city from the amount of real estate, you know, retail, uh, commercial space we have available to the amount of people that are still out of work. But yet when you start to think about Q3 next year of things starting to move move in a positive direction from an oil and gas price perspective, what are your thoughts on Calgary? Clearly, clearly, I would say you sound like you're you're bullish on Calgary and, and our province and going forward. Yeah, I think, look, I think, I think medium term, I'm pretty optimistic for the reasons that I said earlier. It could be mm-hmm. it could be pretty tough uh, for the next twelve months. I you know, you know, as as we're reading headlines of as companies sh- you know shed jobs and yeah. shed their costs, and you know, we, we need that consolidation to occur. Um, we need to start to see some equity come back into our sector. 
Um, and I think those early adopter, those, you know, early investors that realize that, you know, we've sort of hit rock bottom and there's a lot of upside from here. I think they'll be handsomely rewarded over the next few years. Um, and, and once that equity starts to come, then I think you will see um, more consolidation and, um, you know, continued strengthening of the of the sector, which will ultimately, of course, always uh, translate into what that means for Alberta and for Calgary. So I would say over the three to five year period, I'm actually perhaps more optimistic than I have been for years. Um, but we, it's the, the, uh, the big black box is just how do we get from where we are to, to there. And, um, (laughs) you know, that's what, that's what I sort of wake up every day focused on. No, and you're right. It's like you, I know you and I have talked online. You know, unprecedented. You know, don't. There's no. There's no playbook. There, like this is this is a new normal, and we haven't even quantified what normal might be yet. So, the need to figure it out, and having leaders like yourself in the sector that are willing to kind of lean in and you know, because if you don't believe in the future, it's hard to do the hard work today to get there, right? Yeah, You've and got, I think you still have to believe that'll be. There. I think as always, it comes back to at a company level. Um, you know, those of us, you know, and, and I think that we're one of them with you know, great assets and great people will find a way to, to, uh, to be resilient and weather the storm. And so, um, but this, there's no question that this latest, um, development, um, has exposed, you know, any flaws that, that are in a corporate, um, business plan or balance sheet or asset quality have, you know, have been exposed and are being exposed. And so, um, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be a difficult period, I think for the next, 12 months, but hopefully getting a lot better from there. Oh, and historically, like you, like you said, there's, you know, it's, it's who weathers that downturn to take advantage of, of that upside and be, and be rewarded for having the confidence and, and also the skill to invest and, you know, and get involved in the right places. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ken, I don't want to take up any more of your time. That was a great, I feel I could just keep picking your brain here, but I really appreciate one, you walking through and giving a little bit of the historical, someone who didn't grow up in the industry. It always, I always appreciate we didn't get where we are by accident. So understanding the history and the cycles that we've gone through to me, I think gives everyone just a perspective of like, yes, this is a cycle and we're going to work our way through it because, because we're Albertans and we're Calgarians and we, that's what we do. <laughs> exactly. Um, What's the best way? I, velvetenergy.ca, if someone wants to learn a little bit more about you guys and understand what you guys are yeah, doing. Yeah, we have a, we have a, Pretty up to date website there, I think, and uh, that's probably the best the, the best way to to uh, to find out more about what we're doing. We're a private company, so we have four big shareholders. So we're not, you know, we don't we're not out in the public um, as much as some others of our peers. But uh, we have a pretty updated presentation on the website. Excellent. I got your website for me right now. And if someone wants to reach out and get a hold of you directly, is there is it through the website or is there any is there any uh, doorway to kind of get that um, conversation my, going? Uh, my email is kwolner, W-O-O-L-N-E-R at velvetenergy.ca. And so okay. be happy to answer any questions or um, maybe not hate mail, but uh, um, <laughs> but, but I, what, any feedback is always uh, will always be looked at and appreciated. I thank you for that. I always appreciate. We we live in an age of transparency and accessibility. So when people are not afraid to put themselves out there and be open for conversations, that's where you know that's yeah. where change happens. So, Great, Ken. Thanks for thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it okay. a lot. Thank Take you. Take care.